Morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this Friday. It is the last radio hour of the week, and this is our custom most Fridays. Uh, I am talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, once a week, most of the weeks of the year, perhaps 45 weeks of the year. Dr. Arn and I sit down to talk about, or with one of his colleagues, one of the great works of the West, one of the important themes of the West, one of the enduring debates of the West, it is our last live conversation in 2016. We will be doing Dr. Arndt's Force March through the history of great books as we do every year at the end of the year uh, in the next two weeks. And then we'll be back live in 2017. And though we never plan anything, we actually don't. It just has worked out so serendipitously that our last live Hillsdale Dialogue of the Year and new Hillsdale Dialogue of the Year is about the end of that hideous strength, a magnificent book on which to end 2016. Dr. Arn, how are you? Merry Christmas to you. Very well, and you just proved the old adage, whatever art can do, chance can do. Chance can do. There's <laughs> very little art in our planning, but what a wonderful book on which to conclude. And last week we talked about politics, and this week we're going to talk about politics, but it's big politics. It's the theme of that hideous strength. It is the eternal struggle between good and evil, and I, for the benefit of the Steelers fans and the people who are just walking in, let me just say that the, the hero of this story is Ransom, also known as the director. He has been the protagonist in the first two novels in this trilogy. He is back in England, and he is fighting the devil and the devil's own people. And he has as his allies an unlikely group of fellow travelers at St. Anne's uh, on the hill, which is the house in which they gather, against NICE, which is the institute around which all the minions of Satan are operating. He also has celestial allies. Who are those celestial allies, Larry Arn? Uh, well, uh, it's, it's said that they're not angels, exactly. Uh, what they are, they're called Oryarsa, and they are... Uh, how many planets are there? We keep changing the number. But we get to know four of these guys, at least by repute, and three of them we meet. And what they are is big celestial bodies that live near planets and govern those planets directly. And they also have an influence on Earth. For example, Venus is a big figure. And when she's around, we all get to thinking about love. And Mars is a big figure. And when he's around, in somewhere in proximity to where humans are, they all get to wanting to fight. And so they're like that. And they come down and they help out earth uh the faithful few uh against this terrible force which is the devil's agents uh and so there you go you have a great cosmic drama uh but isn't it worth mentioning you that this doesn't appear as ghouls and goblins the devil and his agents appear as bureaucrats and and very occasionally appealing bureaucrats. Lord Feverstone, we all know a Lord Feverstone. In fact, he can be an indictment of me sometimes. I, I saw, oh boy, there's a lot of stuff I don't like in Feverstone. Uh, and that's probably because it's way too close to the surface, right? Yeah. Well, he's, he's, uh, he's he, toward the end of the book, when, when good things happen, he, he says, he has a, an inward conversation, he says, uh, his conscience was not bothering him. He said, "No, it wasn't." He, he had uh, he had never uh, taken anything except it's, it's, I'm paraphrasing, except because he wanted it. Uh, 
<laughs> he, he'd never hurt another person except to get his job. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's a, he's a cold, calculating, self-interested being. And, and unlike the other devil agents, um, not so obviously awful as Withers and uh, uh, the crazy doctor and the uh, Frost, who is the inimical one. They all get their just desserts. And I got to warn people, spoiler alert here, because I want to come back to the Arthurian stuff afterwards. But they all get their just desserts. They are consumed by their evil in the end in various and sundry ways, each of which is fitting. Yeah, that's right. They they destroy themselves. And you have to see, first of all, I, I say that they're all bureaucrats, and you want to get this point because it's it is the one that's most apt to the politics today, in my judgment. Here's a description of this National Institute for Continuing Experiments, the NICE. The NICE was the first fruits of that constructive fusion between the state and the laboratory on which many people thoughtful people base their hopes of a better world. Uh, as we're doing this conversation today, uh, Trump has had this week his great conversation with the rulers of the tech industry, a bunch of trillionaires or whatever they are. And the whole point, there's a whole way of thinking today that technology can remake everything and that the law should become the servant of technology. That's what happens in this book. And private police forces arise, and habeas corpus is done away with, and the rights of man are subjugated to the rights of the nice. It's it's very chilling. I have to say, though, there is an eye for detail in C.S. Lewis, and I, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss this. While not politically correct, for example, Mother Dimble putting a a headdress of jewelry on one of her colleagues, that reverence. It need have nothing to do with money value, which nearly all women feel for jewelry hushed three of them for a moment. That's a telling detail. That's just He just throws it in, right? He's got oh, yeah. all sorts of that throughout the whole book. It's not an easy thing uh, to convey a sense of ritual or ceremony or form. Um it, 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 you know, one of my defenses of the Constitution of the United States is, and of the Electoral College, much under attack these days, is that it's the way we do things, and because we have a way that we're accustomed to, it means that we can all participate in it. We can, we can follow the form, we can do what the document says, and get good at it, and we can all then do it, right? So, in, in Lewis, what, what you're describing there, they're having a dress-up ball. Yes. And it's a triumphant, wonderful ball. And they put on high ceremonial robes. It's both royal and clerical. And, 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 he, it, and it's, when you read about it, uh, we don't have to spoil it. When you read about it, you will think to yourself, I hope, wow, we got to go to a dinner like that. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. If, if it was, and it's going to be over. And there is also about these uh, non-angel angels that descend. There's quite a lot. I, I sent you a note in the middle of this because McPhee started humming a, a, an Ulster marching song. And I thought, what is going on here? And you wrote me back. It's an Ulster marching song. Uh, that quickening of the spirit that happens when Mars is about. And he is actually quite a good observer of all things human, male and female, for being an Oxford Don who didn't get out much after the First War. Yeah, he, well, first of all, he has, you know, what, what are the, one of the claims 
of the virtue of the ancient city if you, and, and of Aristotle is, in a city like that, you can know the human types. You can know them all because it's big enough to present all those types, but not so big that you can't have friends. And Lewis had friends, very close friends, and then other acquaintances that he didn't like so well, and he studied them for his lifetime, and he was perceptive. And so when he writes a book, he populates it with people he knows, and sometimes amalgams of them. And that's why it's so rich and interesting, because sure enough, those are real human types, and you're likely to know people like them. Yeah, exactly. You're also likely to discover that what we deny, essential national identity, is deeply embedded in this book, and it's got nothing to do with race. It's got everything to do with place. And I love the fact, in fact, if I can read, Dimble, who's an academic, was silent for a few minutes, arranging and rearranging the fruit knife and fruit fork on his plate. It all began, he said, when we discovered that the Arthurian story is mostly true history. There was a moment in the 6th century when something that is always trying to break through into this country nearly succeeded. Logris was our name for it. It will do as well as another. And then gradually we began to see all English history in a new way. We discovered the haunting. What haunting, asked Camilla. We have something we may call Brinted, Britain, which is always haunted by something we may call Logris. Haven't you noticed that we are two countries after every Arthur, a Mordred, behind every Milton, a Cromwell, a nation of poets, a nation of shopkeepers, the home of Sydney and of Cecil Rhodes? Is it any wonder that they call us hypocrites? But what they mistake for hypocrisy is really the struggle between Logras and Britain. Isn't that amazing, Larry Arn? 30 seconds to the break. Okay, yeah, well, first of all, I'm, gonna, I'm spending Christmas with the in-laws, and that means we're, we're going to England. Everybody's ah. going to England on Friday. And uh, that's it. I, I was describing to some people, what's it like? Well, first of all, manners, they're really good, and they're different from ours. <laughs> okay, well, hold that thought. When we come back, Christmas in England for Dr. Larry Arn, having just read that hideous strength, I'm deeply jealous. Don't go anywhere, America, except to your library. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on The Hugh Hewitt Show. A Merry Christmas to you, America. Special edition of the Hilltail Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn. We are concluding the study of C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, which we really can't conclude unless you read the book and go to the seminar that Dr. Arn has been teaching all this semester. Uh, and the book, That Hideous Strength, the third of three books in the in the trilogy. All of the dialogues about this and every other dialogue back to home are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. If you're doing end-of-year giving, by the way, you're a, you're a beneficent person and you want to find a place to, uh, to make a difference, then send a kid on scholarship to Hillsdale. Send a check to Dr. Arn and say, put it in the scholarship fund. I'm sure you'll do that, won't you, Dr. Arn? Oh, yeah. Yeah, glad to do it. Thank you. The college is yeah. doing very well these days, and we're grateful to all the people who've given us money and all the people who haven't who listen to these dialogues. And I want more people to, to do that because you also make it possible for any veteran of the war who wants to go to college and is qualified to come to Hillsdale to do so without benefit of the veterans' benefits uh, because you won't take any federal money because you don't want to be entangled with these sons of guns. And there's a good reason. Nice is everything it touches is corrupted, Larry Arn. Everything right. it touches. Yeah, and you, you, I have to know, I diverted you by telling a story about my English family, but uh, you want to talk about Arthur. Yes. And, and one of the things that the nice would utterly undo is any sense of anything old. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 there's, 
the, the philosophic argument really just amounts to this, that if there isn't anything permanent, there can't be anything old. And uh, anything old of any value. And what that really boils down to is there isn't anything real. Uh, that's what Wither and Frost, and it's, it's very carefully described, because Lewis, remember, is a big-time thinker. Uh, it's described how modern philosophy... He says, Lewis writes of Wither, one of the two main bad guys, that he passed through Hegel and Kant and into logical positivism. And then finally, there was nothing left in his mind. I have that written down. It's such a progression. I have that written down. (laughs) It's it's awesome. And, you know, you should all go read those guys, by the way, because they are wonderful and terrible and their influence is all about us every day, every time you read the newspaper. Well, Lewis has these other influences, which apparently have inspired Hugh. I've been reading, by the way, The Once and Future King. I'd never read it. Until you mentioned I've never it read that. I, it's on my list now. How good is it? It's good. It's really great. And it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. It, uh, this uh, White, the author of it, wrote Arthur stories all his life. And he wrote some of the same ones more than once. And this novel, The Once and Future King, collects all of those stories into a single novel. And it kind of reads like that. It reads like a bunch of things written at different times about, about Arthur, mostly young Arthur. And then, of course, The Sword and the Stone is a great story. So you've given me a gift. You mentioned a book, and I went and got it, and I've been reading it. And... Uh, but see, that story, just think what that does for England, right? First of all, there was probably a real Arthur, and it was probably a golden moment, and it probably had something to do with Britain winning its independence and becoming its own thing, whereas it had really been an invasion ground for various northern European tribes. And so Britain can hark back to something that is really prehistoric. Only partially do we know about it. And, we, you know, the great book is Thomas Mallory, who wrote, who wrote Mort D'Arthur, The Death of Arthur. And that's the prime source. But British people can think back and think, this thing is aged. Like, I, uh, you know, we're going to go to church in England, right? And we're going to go on Christmas Eve, we're going to go to church. And if we were up in the north, where my wife grew up, we would go to the church where we were married, the bell tower of which is 700 years old. <laughs> and, and my wife's family, my wife's father's side, traces their lineage back to that region before that. That means somebody in her family helped build that church. And instead, we'll go probably to Westminster Abbey, and that's, you know, a thousand years old. And so Britain, it's, it's not, America is the oldest constitutional republic but britain is really old in actual time and that means that the struggles between power and freedom and between good and evil have their longest recorded history in the west there other than rome and we'll talk about that when we come back because rome prefigured this struggle in their god stay tuned americans to you hewitt show the hillsdale dialogues continue Welcome back, American Sue Hewitt, talking on this, the Hillsdale Dialogue this week with Dr. Larry Arn, who's soon off to England. I don't get to go to England until September 12th of next year when I take a Hugh Hewitt cruise with David Allen White. That's linked over to HughHewitt.com. Maybe I'll 
lecture on that hideous strength. And one of the interesting things about England, as you were talking about going to break, uh, Larry Arn, is how old it is and therefore how much is played out there. But in this book, That Hideous Strength, there is also the overlay of the Roman gods and the argument, which I believe is Plato originally, that the forms have always been there, and either before the revelation of Christ, you could figure it out, as the smart guys did, by virtue of these forms and these uh, angelic creatures whose race kind of walk the earth in the pagan state. you want to expand on what, what Lewis is trying to tell us here? That's right, yeah, the tie to Rome. By the way, I've met the man you introduced me to, Barry Strauss, and I'm reading his book, The Death of Caesar. Oh, cool. It's just awesome. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, but, so, you know, civilization. Rome, Rome, in a certain way, codifies and universalizes the philosophy that was discovered in Greece. Young Romans read the Greek books. And, you know, they had conquered Greece, and then Greece conquered them back. And so you get the idea that man is one thing. And that can only be true since men live under different laws if man is a kind of thing, right, and that uh, has something in common that makes every man or woman different from every dog or cat. Well, once you get that idea of these kinds, then the next obvious suggestion is what is the hierarchy of the kinds? Exactly. And you can see perfections in human beings that are not present in other beings, but you can also see imperfections in the human being, and that obviously leads you to think and see to ver- just to see that there are these imperfections is to identify what perfection would look like and then you get a picture of god and that's how it comes up in plato and aristotle and now uh, I, I i also want to jump around a little bit to the destructive the destructive havoc at the end of this book because when totalitarian societies collapse and they have collapsed quite a lot in our lifetime uh, chaos ensues, and a lot of people go down with them. And we're talking during the tragedy of Aleppo, where evil is simply shooting citizens in the street and and mass bombing and barrel bombs. And at the end of that hideous strength, the havoc played out on poor Edgestow, uh, Edgestow is quite severe, uh, and it's, it's um, heavenly in its origin. There is no sympathy in McPhee, by the way, but Mother Dimple's a little bit upset that everyone gets waxed. Uh, on whose side is Arn in that debate? Uh, well, it's uh, let's put it this way. You have here a recreation of the contest between the Lord and on the one hand and Sodom and Gomorrah on the other. Whose side are you going to be on? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, Abraham walked down to Sodom and Gomorrah and said, if I can find five people in the town, can I spare the town? He couldn't find five people. And Denniston is one of the good guys, says, one feels sorry for a man like Churchwood. I knew him well, and he was an old dear. All of his lectures were devoted to proving the impossibility of ethics. Though in private life, he'd walk 10 miles rather than leave a penny debt unpaid. But all the same, was there a single doctrine practiced at Belbury which hadn't been preached by some lecturer at Edstow? Of course not. They just never thought that anyone would act on their theories. No one was more astonished then than they were that they'd been talking about for years suddenly took on reality, but it was their own child coming back to them, grown up and unrecognizable by their own. I thought that was... So damning of academia, Larry Arn. Yeah. Well, remember the great Leo Strauss uh, once wrote that uh, 
modern philosophy as it's practiced in the academy today, and all of the attendant disciplines as well, would be like uh, Nero fiddling while Rome burned, except they did not know that they were fiddling and they did not know that Rome was burning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what, they they had no idea what they were bringing down on themselves. That's exactly it, right. Why does... Why does Curry survive? I mean, at the end of this thing, Curry, there's a beautiful bit where he's going back to London and he's practicing grief, but he's actually plotting to get control. You you can't stamp it out. Well, I I think my, so first of all, there's a particular providence, you know, that's that's a religious doctrine, particular providence. There's a particular providence operating. Lots of people get out of edge, edge, though. So in other words, justice is done. Most of the people who need to get away do get away. One of them is told to go buy a donkey. Yes. Donkey says, leave. Um, I think Curry survives so that Lewis can have one more chance to describe what he's like, because Curry is an <laughs> academic bureaucrat. Yes. And you can tell that just irks the daylights out of C.S. Lewis, and he must have known many such. And so Curry is very important, and he rises up, right? And he's now going to be the rebuilder. The second founder. College and all of Edstone. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually one of the funny. You get tears in your eyes, even though it's a sad scene coming after when Ransom's got to leave. i got to read it. At, at this time, without the least hypocrisy, habit and instinct had given his shoulders such a droop his eyes such a solemn sternness, his brow such a noble gravity, as a man of good feeling might be expected to exhibit on hearing such news. The ticket collector was greatly edified. You could see he felt bad, he said afterwards, but he could take it. He's a fine old chap. When is the next train to London, asked Curry? I must be in town first thing tomorrow morning. <laughs> That's it, yeah. See, Lewis, you can do, and see, what was Lewis like, right? He loved to smoke his pipe and talk at night with his inklings and at the pub on uh, one day a week, right? And he, he liked his tutorials, although he often described his students as dunderheads. And so he lived the life, and he wrote a lot of books, and he gave a lot of erudite and inspiring talks, right? And then there's another kind of person around a college, you know, people who occupy jobs like mine, for example. And <laughs> and they they are always talking about their lost academic career. And everybody else in the college thinks what fools they are. And, uh, you know, so that's, you've just got an excellent description of me. But, uh, but he, he, Curry is, in fact, a bureaucrat. And, uh, you know, I mean, people sometimes say to me, why do you write books? And I always say, and why do you teach? And And I always say the same thing to both. I say, because I do not wish to become an idiot. (laughs) Because it keeps you humble. It it keeps you from becoming uh, much too uh, grand. I've got to ask you about McPhee, and then when we come back about the impact of this book on on your students. There are many interesting characters. Ransom has to be read through to understand him. But Ransom is going away at the end, and McPhee says, no, no. Uh, you're speaking none of your blessings over me. If I ever take to religion, it won't be your kind. My uncle was moderator of the General Assembly, but there's my hand, what you and I have seen together. But no matter for that, and I'll say this, Dr. Ransom, that with all your faults, and there's no man alive who knows them better than myself, you're the best man taking you by and large that I ever knew or I ever heard of. You are, and you and I, there are ladies crying. I don't really know what I was going to say. I'm away this minute. 
Why would a man want to lengthen it? God bless you, Dr. Ransom. Ladies, I wish you a good night. It's a manly leave take. McPhee's a man. I love McPhee. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, when Mars comes down and all the ones at St. Anne's, the house where Ransom and his company live, when he comes down and they all get in a warlike uh, mood, it, uh, it, McPhee says, you know, I just... I just would like to just have one go at them, he says. You know, just, just use the blade, he says. Uh, we got, when we come back, I hope the, the music is over the Boyne, because that's what he's humming, which is a, an Ulster marching song from the Orange Invasion by William the Orange. Let's go back to, um, to, the, uh, to the bottom line here. Your students, this comes after 1984, this comes after Brave New World, this comes after a lot of dreary losses to the totalitarian impulse. How did they react to this? Oh, yeah. Well, it, uh, so this has been uh, – yesterday I had office hours, which I do by taking – anybody wants to see me I, to every week I can. I go to the dining hall, and, and we all eat lunch together. Everybody wants to talk to me, student body. So I had like five from the class. And the class is over, you know, this tomorrow. School's over. The, the term's over tomorrow. And uh, they've taken their finals, but I had five of them show up. And they didn't have any particular question. They just wanted to talk more. <laughs> uh. And uh, one of our great young theology professors, whom I'm so proud that we have hired, he's really great, his name is Jordan Wales. And uh, he happened to be in my office before this started, so I asked him to come along. And so think what a company that was. These really great students, a couple of them just really super smart, right? Well, they're all smart, but, you know, they, these... These are all dogs that will hunt. And, and Professor Wales and I, and we sat there for two hours. I was late for my next meeting. Well, that's good. Oh, yeah. It's really <laughs> awesome. And this has been a very successful class. And that hideous strength comes as a vast and wonderful relief at the end. Oh, I'll bet. I'll bet you they are, they're happy when they go home for Christmas. I don't know how. Yesterday, um, E.R. Braithwaite died. He wrote to Sir with Love. And so last night, in honor of him, he's 104 years old, a British Guyanan, and he wrote about teaching in a British public school, not a public school, but a British you know, school for lower-class kids. And they made a movie out of it with Sidney Poitier, because this, this fellow was uh, a Guyanan and black, and, and it was a true story. And so Betsy and I watched that last night, and uh, were edified by good teachers. Teachers do great things with people. That's a great movie, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it in 100 years. It was made in 1967. Have you ever seen it? I've seen it. In fact, in recent years, I've seen it. I do uh, love it. I, yeah. I have a criticism of it, too. But I, Which I is? Really... Well, tell me the criticism. Well, what he doesn't quite get right is that he, he inspires these kids by making school more relevant, right, by talking about their own lives. Well, that's a tool, but in the end, doesn't everybody love to learn about high and wonderful and great things if you can just teach them? He's I mean, pointing them. He shouldn't. He should have brought the books back at the end. That's right. your criticism, right? That's I have the it. same. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why? First of all, what the devil are we doing here, Hugh, on the radio, on a national radio program, talking about old books? Why does that work? Yeah. You know? And so that part they don't quite get right, and uh, well, that's an important part. But being a teacher, they do get right. And what you've done this semester is we'll come back after the break and discuss. You teach them about the great danger. We'll be back to close 2016's Hillsdale Dialogues talking about the great danger. The great danger right now is that the Fed's raised rates and you haven't called 888 888 
1172 There is a great danger if you don't get in touch with Sierra Pacific. And my friends Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian, they are taking care of hundreds. Now I think it's more than a 1,000 of you have refinanced with them, have begun to refinance with them, have bought a home with them, have helped your children or your grandchildren do a home because of the historically low interest rates. But the Fed raised rates yesterday. Now, that's not the end of the world. We knew it was coming. It should have worked a little bit faster, but don't say, oh, I missed the very bottom of the market. It will never be this low again. It probably won't be, not in our lifetime. But it's not going to be the low as it is right now again either. And so if you're just looking up and saying, you know what, I I got a bonus here. I can buy a house or I can help Sally buy a house or I can get my second refinanced in my first. Do it right now. 888-888-1172. Call Andrew and Todd. Do it today. Do it this weekend. 888-888-1172. Stay tuned. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. That's Over the Boyne, the marching song, the battle song of the Orangemen from the uh, English Civil War when William the Conqueror arrived. And it's hummed at one critical moment in that hideous strength. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. All the Hillsdale Dialogues. Uh, we are completing a semester that followed Dr. Arn's semester through the, the literature of totalitarianism. And we will begin next year with The Abolition of Man, which was also in it, also Lewis. But I wanted to finish by talking about your students and the impact on this. Um, how many of them are comfortable with the overt Christianity of this novel? Hillsdale is a special place. They would not feel put apart. But it would be hard to teach this novel on almost any other campus in America. Larry Arn. Well, that uh, probably. Uh, of course, at Hillsdale, it's not, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's natural. But, um, but remember that Hillsdale is a thinking place. Right, and so, and Lewis is a thinking man, and one of the reasons Lewis is extremely popular on the Hillsdale campus, I mean, there are four of us who teach various things about Lewis by latest count, is that Lewis explains things, and Lewis is is deeply steeped in that in that knowledge that shows that if you can look about you and see how things are arranged you will see the implications of God. And that means that to be a militant atheist is actually to be a fool. Uh, And, you know, the Bible says that. But then the question is, once you think the implication of God is around, then the question is, what's he like? And, And how can you make sense of it all, right? How can we have freedom imperfect beings and yet be creatures like God, how do you figure that out, right? So at Hillsdale, we're all over that, right? And, you know, we have Jews and we have Muslims and we have non-Christians, although the vast, you know, overwhelming majority are Christian kids, and everybody signs an honor code that respects the purpose of the college to teach Christianity by precept and example. That's in the original articles, right? So everybody agrees to that, and and uh, we've never required a faith statement to attend. Well, what that sets up is we can talk about these things and understand them, and that makes us better people, including better Christians. So I've got to ask you at the end of the year, because it's a, it's a hopeful time. Uh, the president-elect is naming some bureaucracy destroyers about, and people are lying about them as a result. They are lying that uh, Andy Puzner is for robots and that Scott Pruitt is a climate denier. So there's a lot of fake news about them. So bureaucracy won't go easily into the night, but far more disturbing than any of those 
Students at Penn. Have you followed this story, what the students at Penn did just two days ago? Uh, They rose up, the students at Penn did, in the English department, and they ripped from the wall a vast and large image of Shakespeare uh, that had been there for uh, forever. And they replaced it with Audre Lorde, the black feminist poet who died in 1992. Uh, and they took it, they took the vast portrait of, of, of Shakespeare and, and left it in the department chair's office. Um, they were not disciplined for doing this. Might have hurt the picture, not sure. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, well, isn't that what's going on in this novel? Um, yeah, it's exactly what's going on in the novel. It uh, you can't. I mean, first of all, Shakespeare, right? You could spend a lifetime understanding him, and the idea that he was narrow in any way—he was the widest and the highest possible human soul, as far as we're competent to judge such things. Uh, and you know, if you want to understand racism. You know, read The Merchant of Venice. Uh, You know, it's better watch the production that uh, Al Pacino plays Shylock. I mean, it's just awesome and deeply touching and troubling. And so the idea that you would tear that down, I mean, that's tearing down what pain is for. With, With that hideous strength in mind and the bureaucraties that Withers always speaks in, Here's the statement this morning from Jed Esty, English Department Chair at Penn. The English faculty here has planned to move that portrait for at least four years, so it's really not a story about student radicals tearing down icons. Shakespeare's place as a valued writer is under no threat here, and the widening of the mission of the English Department to include not just classic but contemporary writers is by now old news. No serious English Department doesn't teach and celebrate Shakespeare. We certainly do at Penn. But neither do any serious English departments in 2016 take their mission as exclusively oriented to a single writer or even a few classic writers. Our student know the classics and so much more. Isn't that so withers, Larry Arn, with a minute left? Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> <laughs> we had planned to do it for years. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Have- have a Merry Christmas, Dr. Arn. We'll talk in the new year about the abolition of man. I, I hope you write something about that. It's just so perfect. Uh, the uh, wonderful, a wonderful Christmas to you and your English family and your American family. America, I'll be back next week. I'm still working, even though these academics go traveling. I'll be here next week to get you to Christmas. Thanks for listening.